capitalism is this shift to an economy where most people um, sell their time and their skills uh, for a wage and then a minority people, less people, kind of own the majority of the profit from that. Now, with that development of capitalism, you know, at the same time, so not as a separate thing, but very much as part of it, comes colonialism, right? So you begin extracting, so taking, sealing, pilfering, whatever words you want to use, resources from other countries around the world. So that looks like you go to another country and then you tax them and you take that tax to your own country. Or you go to another country and you de-industrialize that economy and then you take the raw materials from that country to Britain there you you kind of change them into whatever it is that you're going to change them into whether it's clothes or something else and then you sell it back to the country that you took the original raw material from hello and welcome i'm shiza your host of reinvision business and co-founder of up effects if you're new to our work over the last five years we've loved amplifying and supporting business models that prioritize equity conservation and economic empowerment we're now advancing this work through our Reinvision Business Podcast. This series will highlight the emerging need for responsible trade that uplifts communities frequently left behind. In each episode, we'll invite thought leaders to deconstruct our current systems, and with their help, we'll spotlight models that are reinvisioning business. Together, we'll unearth a blueprint for an economy redesign. In this episode, I sit down with Suhaima Manzoor Khan an educator, writer, and poet from Leeds. Her work disrupts common understandings of history, race, knowledge, and power, particularly interrogating the purpose of narratives about Muslims, migrants, gender, and violence. While Suhaima has been very humble about her knowledge of the business sector, I've learned a lot about the history of wealth and capitalism from her. And this episode is packed with many examples that help us understand how our systems work and where we need to do better. Here is my conversation with Sahema. Sahema, thank you so, so much for being on Reinvision Business. I've admired your work for so, so many years, and I was so heartened to finally meet you at our first Up Effect event, um, which I believe was in 2019. And here we are today, living through a pandemic. Um, it's really hard to articulate the many systemic issues that affect Muslims. And your poetry, you know, beautifully captures what so many of us are feeling. And so I just want to thank you for all the work that you do. And it's just such an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. That's really, really kind. And I'm really excited to be here, actually, you know, since since I met you. Um, you know, I think the conversations that you're part of are always really interesting. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited to see how today unravels. So thank you. Thank you, Sahima. And um, I was recently on your website and I came across your section on why you do the work that you do. And I just found the words to be so, so powerful. And I just wanted to start by reading this extract um, because I know so many of our listeners would appreciate getting to know a little bit about what inspires you to do the work that you're involved in today. So it reads... We change the world through changing the ways we think about the world. It is only by understanding that the world is the way it is due to historical processes, decisions, and political needs that we understand we are able to change it. The world has not always been this way. We do not have to fatalistically accept it, and we have the power to change it. Liberating ourselves from the oppressive system within our own thinking helps us to trust our own experiences as valid sources of knowledge, which we have been deliberately deprived of understanding and instead fed propaganda, systemically gaslit and lied to about. Understanding and learning about our conditions is therefore crucial for resistance and transformation. So Hema, these are honestly such incredible words, and I feel really appropriate for the times that we're, that we're currently living through. I mean, so many of the systems that we've become accustomed to working within on a day-to-day -day basis, um, they've been unraveling in front of us. And so I, I thought these words captured how so many of us are feeling right now um, in such a beautiful way. So I want to start by asking, what was that defining moment in your life that inspired you to kind of reevaluate what's happening in the world in this way, and then to actively move towards resisting it, exposing it, and then deciding to change it? Um, 
Wow. Okay. <laughs> I think firstly, thank you for um, kind of reading that out. I think it's been a while since I wrote that. And sometimes, you know, you, you kind of go into these phases of, I suppose, like despondency. And it's sometimes nice to remember when you, you know, when you've been more inspired and more hopeful. So I um, just want to say I appreciate that. And I think to the question, you know, I find this really difficult. I don't think, I think I would be lying. It would be dishonest if I said that there was a singular moment or like anything that kind of, you know, distinctly pushed me into, you know, just taking stock of the world. And I think it's more, you know, a series of events, right? And I guess if I was to trace it, I think when I was, um, as simple things, like when I was at school, I remember being really aware that, you know, some students walked one way home from school and some students walked another way. And the ones who walked one way tended to more majority be more white, more middle class. And the houses on that side of the school were nicer. Um, you know, there was more open space to play, all these kinds of things. On the other side, everyone tended to be black and brown. The houses were not as nice. Um, there was less space to play. And and I think those really simple things from early on in my life, I, I was always curious, I guess, like not to be really cliched, but I think I was. And I think that ma made me kind of, always want to know, you know, why is that? That seems a strange coincidence, right? It can't just be happenstance that this is the way things are. Or even I remember feeling quite, you know, I suppose angry and, and felt that it was quite unfair that, you know, at school we had, you know, a setted system and it was like, you know, well, hang on, why is it that some people are in these lower sets and some people are in the higher sets? And again, why does it seem to follow this racial division? Why does it seem to follow the, that also kind of reflects the people who walk this way and the people who walk that way, right? And so, I just say that to emphasize that I think I've always had this sense, as I'm sure many people have, that, you know, things aren't fair. Um, and I think for me, what what really, or if I was to kind of signal things that change things for me, when I was at university was a really pivotal moment, because I think up until that point in my life, I'd really tried to live the, live that... <sighs> Up until that point, I'd really sort of bought into the myth of meritocracy, I suppose. And I, as much as I saw these things around me, I kind of did accept that if I worked really hard, um, I would have the same opportunities as everybody else. And so I got into Cambridge University from a state school. And that's really the, you know, the pinnacle of that myth of meritocracy, right? But when I arrived at Cambridge University, it was very different. It was, you know clearly the people who went there weren't the cleverest people in the country you know I, I know many many clever people who never went to university and what I found was that the majority of these people actually rather than being particularly clever were from wealthy families they went to private schools um, and they you know they happened to kind of have the right capital that meant that they could have tutors after school that they could go to the right museums and the right plays and see all the right things that you know kind of enabled them to have that rich personal statement and I think that was pivotal if I was to pinpoint something because it kind of crashed all those that kind of me kind of holding on to that hope that maybe you know there is an equal opportunity for everybody because you're just in this environment where it's clearly elitist it's upholding a tradition of elitism and I think that was important and it, and it led me to I suppose a politicization um of realizing that you know it's not just by coincidence that this is the case there are um, decisions that have been made that make it so. And, you know, I, I, at first I was still really, you know, I suppose enthused to do widening participation work, right? So I was coming up to Bradford, going to schools around Bradford and saying to people that you can apply to Cambridge, you should apply. But at the same time, I was having a really difficult experience there myself and I felt really conflicted. And I, and I guess what I realised in that time was, again, there are decisions that are being made that mean it is m that much more difficult for these people to go. But also, is this even, you know, why do we look, like hold this place up in such reverence? Why is it seen to be so important? Um, the kinds of knowledge that I was learning wasn't necessarily just like the best quality of history you can learn. I was studying history. It was a specific type of history that told a specific type of story. And it didn't include my, you know, my, when I studied um, British history, it didn't include my grandparents moving to the UK it didn't explain why they came to the UK there was no kind of sense of like Britain as, a, as a, an empire um that was a that's kind of you know old history right that's nothing to do with modern Britain so I, I say all of that just to say that I think rather than there being these defining moments I think just living my life and kind of realizing that being the quote-unquote good immigrant you know being the trying to be the most kind of hard-working aspirational all those words and things that we're told to do and then all of that being proven to me actually to just be a myth was something that really helped me, I think, to, to start making connections. And, you know, at Cambridge, I then met 
um, other, particularly women of colour and black women who, um, you know, together we read works by Audrey Lord. we read works by, you know, black feminists and by kind of black radicals, um, thinkers, especially from the US, who, for me, that helped me to name those processes that that were kind of shaping the world around me and say, oh, okay, this has a name. Perhaps this is structural racism. Perhaps this is, um, you know, uh, ba- rooted in a colonial logic of understanding people. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. I can go on and on. But I think that those things were really pivotal. And since then, you know, you asked a, a part of your question was, you know, what, what kind of is the impetus to want to change those things? Um, I find that always a really strange question because, you know, I think for all of us, when we see and feel something that is so, that, you know, grates against our very being or kind of make, says that our life is not valuable or that, you know, makes our life unlivable or our family's lives or the people that we care about's lives unlivable, I think it almost doesn't, it's not an option. It's not sort of like, "Mm, what should I do today? Should I try to change that? You know, it's just part of who you are. You want things to be different. And I think for me, it's less like, oh, I want to change things. I'm more just a really simple kind of premise that, you know, I would like the world I live in to be safe for myself and the people that I care about. That demands that we do try and change things. So it's, you know, uh, yeah, I think that that's all it is. It's not something grandiose. Um, but yeah, does that sort of answer the question maybe? Yes, yes, it does. Um, and I think when the systems work against you on that level, so if you're a person of colour, if you're female, um, if you're a Muslim, there's a lot of things and factors within society that are working against you. And so your natural instinct is obviously to fight against it because if it's affecting you, it's in fact, it's impacting other people around you and it's impacting your family members, it's affecting your friends and your circles. How far do you think those problems extend? Are they on a small scale or do you think they extend on a much larger scale where we're seeing those kind of systemic injustices have been embedded within our economic and business structures as well yeah I think that the latter I think that you know it it can sound sometimes a bit vague and ambiguous to say that things are systemic and they're structural but you know let's just talk about what we mean what we're what you're saying in that question is that the way things are today including the economy and businesses you know is it just coincidence that they work the way that they do? Is it just like happenstance or like people make different decisions? Or is there perhaps some reason, some underlying history or logic that leads things to being the way they are? Now, I studied history. I'm really interested in the past. I think we're all interested in the past because it tells us something about how we got to today. And when we look at the past, you know, one, uh, there's a few really defining processes that have happened in the last 500 years that I think shape what you're talking about. So one of those is the development of capitalism, right? And this, I know I sound like I'm talking about something really obvious and I'm not trying to patronize any listeners, but I think it's important for us to just outline these things because sometimes they're so um, obvious that they actually become hidden, right? They're just so much a part of like what we're normalized to. So capitalism is this shift to an economy where most people um, sell their time and their skills uh, for a wage and then a minority people, less people, kind of own the majority of the profit from that. Now, with that development of capitalism, you know, at the same time, so not as a separate thing, but very much as part of it, comes colonialism, right? So you begin extracting, so taking, sealing, pilfering, whatever words you want to use, resources from other countries around the world. So that looks like you go to another country and then you tax them and you take that tax to your own country. Or you go to another country... And you deindustrialize that economy, and then you uh, take the raw materials from that country to Britain. There, you you kind of ch- change them into whatever it is that you're going to change them into, whether it's clothes or something else, and then you sell it back to the country that you took the original raw material from. So you're finding all these different ways to to you know make money uh, to increase that profit that we just mentioned, and that could you know and that also obviously includes like extracting all these raw materials. So mining, you know, that might be minerals, it might be um, tech textiles, it might be any number of things, and it might be people, right? And this is the other kind of central part of this these processes, which is slavery. Um, the transatlantic slave trade in particular, because this is where we kind of see the beginning of uh, racial hierarchy as we know it. So sometimes I think we think about the way the world is now, it's kind of, things have always been this way, right? We can't really change them. And as the quote that you kind of quoted from my website earlier on, it is also rooted in my own understanding of the fact that actually racism, for example, is very much a, a, a modern phenomenon. You know, 500, 400, 500 years ago, 
people started thinking about this idea that race exists. I think something to, a myth that kind of needs busting is that people sometimes think racism exists because races exist, right? So because of these racial differences between us, people end up being racist. But it's in fact the other way around, you know? Racism only exists because people started to pretend and invent the idea of racial difference. So I say, ah, there are these people who are, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, they are, I'm going to call them black, and I'm going to say that this type of person, you know, doesn't have a value as a human being, therefore we can export them now as a commodity, we can use them as a labour force, and we can extract the value of their labour to you know, our country, Britain. Um, at the same time, you know, I'm going to say that at the top of this hierarchy, there are white Europeans and we're actually, and you can read these, you know, enlightenment philosophers that people love to this day, right? David Hume, Kant, Rousseau, Voltaire, all of these kinds of thinkers, they're writing things in the 18th century, 17th, 18th century about, you know, Europeans are at the height of civilization. There are, the, you know, there are no types of inventors or thinkers outside of Europe. There's no real types of humans outside of Europe. And so all of that, is really what explains the basis of those very personal, minute, you know, experiences I was having uh, as a young person and kind of going, oh, you know, why are people looking at me in this way, etc. And what you're asking, does this link to our economy and businesses today? I think absolutely. And, you know, a very clear example of that is, you know, um, there's actually a book by Nadine El Anani that came out recently or last year called Bordering Britain. I just mentioned it because I think I really recommend it to people to read. And one of the examples she talks about is that after slavery was abolished in the 1800s, um, British slaveholders, so people who were slave owners or they owned plantations, were compensated by the British government. And this is the biggest bailout, uh, you know, up until 2008, right? So this is a huge, like a multi-million pound bailout in, in today's uh, numbers given to people because, you know, they lost, quote unquote, the slaves that they owned. I mentioned that because that money that they were compensated was then invested, right? Because these people are really wealthy now. They have all this money from the government. It was invested in the kinds of industries that underpin, you know, many of the things that we see in the world around us today or the society around us today. It underpins many of the institutions. So, you know, going back to, I went to Cambridge University, how much of the money from Cambridge University is actually built on uh, slavery endowments or, you know, compensation? Even commerce today, you know, uh, the owner of Pret a uh, his great grandfather or his grandfather was governor general of India during colonialism. So, again, so where did that wealth come from that's now in today, you know, the investment that underpins today's commerce? And it's important to know all of that because I think sometimes we separate, we kind of think, you know, colonialism is something that happened in the past. Yes, it was bad. Slavery was bad. You know, what can we do about it? We'll, we'll try and move on. But actually, it still Im is embedded in the kinds of institutions and things we see around us. And it has an impact on who today are those owners of capital and those who end up selling their time and their skills. And obviously, there's a hierarchy within that as well. But I think that's, I, I think to answer your question, yes, absolutely, there are these broader structures and broader processes that still underpin um, these things. And I think sometimes we think they're not because they've rebranded themselves and they kind of shifted how they look. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't look today as if colonialism is a really important part of our economy. But, you know, aside from everything I've just said, there's still a very present colonial relationship too, right? And, you know, I think this is something that we might talk about it further on. But the global south is still very much a part of why the global north economy does as well as it does. And, you know, there's all those kinds of debt relationships and everything else. So to answer the question in 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 short, yes, there is a much, much bigger kind of structural um much bigger set of structural processes that underpin our economy today. And given that so many systems are so interlinked, I mean, there's so many, such big ramifications for getting involved in a capitalistic economic system. And a lot of the details that you just explained so wonderfully um, actually breaks down and unpacks what are the actual issues that impact us on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not something that's historic. It's something that's impacting each one of us on a, on, on a, on a very present level. How, where do you think we should turn to when we are building our business? Do you think the state is supporting enterprise in a positive way or do you think the state is actually a large contributor to accelerating capitalism and actually advancing it into the state that it the power that it holds over our systems today i mean you know if we if we look at uk for an example um 
so many of the um, medical contracts that we were actually depending on to actually save us during this pandemic were actually given to the friends of our um, MPs, M- MPs, right? So how how do we avoid scenarios like that? And um, what role can the government play, if any, if it should play any role in um, supporting the the needs and the um, protecting its citizens rather than exploiting and extracting from its society in the way that it has done so for the last several years? This is a really tough question. I think there's a lot of different parts that I'd kind of want to address here. And I think, you know, so maybe the first thing to say is that, as you kind of alluded to, the state and uh you know, businesses, corporations, um, and obviously, you know, when we talk about businesses, there's a there's a the big scale, right? Because you've got people who, you know, I I knit blankets at home and I sell them. That's a business, but so is you know G4S, a global security company that own like detention centres and prisons in the UK, right? And so that's they're not the same thing. Um, so I think what we have to remember is that the state is because sometimes the state I think is just used as like this phrase that we can kind of lose sight of what it is like those other things we mentioned but the state is really lots of different moving parts and that includes the government it includes also you know law enforcement it includes um, schools it includes prisons it includes kind of the military um, and and different arms of kind of uh, power right but this power usually operates to uphold the interest of capital. As you said, you know, you have the same interest, you know, government are upholding the interests of these uh, private business owners who are their friends, right? And I think that's a good example. Shareholders are another good example, right? Where do we see this crossover between people who hold hold shares in certain companies, also kind of uh, lobbying for for policy that will, will help those people? So the first thing to say is that I think, yeah, the state will always have a shared interest for a certain set of capitalist class and a certain set of corporations. And that's really actually the development of the modern state is is very much the development of how to kind of protect and, and best ensure profit making for that class of people. But the second part of your question is kind of like, I guess, alluding to a different set of probably business interests, right? So, you know, not these huge global multinational corporations, um, and kind of asking what the role of government is and uh, its responsibilities to citizens. And I think there's something here that's also worth mentioning, which is that I think it's very easy to slip into thinking about our economy. Certain, it's just, I think it's easy to slip into thinking about our economy simply in national terms. So it's sort of like our government has a responsibility to us as citizens and, and business owners, right? But actually, you know, not just Britain, but, you know, much of the West has a really live global relationship in its economy. And what I mean by that is that it also includes non-citizens, right? Like actually undocumented people are a really important part of the British economy. And these are people who will be called illegal immigrants. Um, and so they're pushed into quote unquote illegal work. So this just means they don't have documents because the government has made it illegal for them to be here. Um, but they're working in, you know, some of the most precarious and kind of dangerous and, and cheap exploited labour. But there's also people uh, kind of in a more, you know, what's been called like um, irregularised migrants. Um, so people who maybe, you know, have a visa for a certain amount of time or, you know, they're not a permanent citizen. And I'm just mentioning this because it's like, you know, I think we, we, we shouldn't and we must be careful not to limit the responsibility that the government has to only those of us who sort of are proper citizens, you know, so we've got passports, um, uh, X, Y, Z, because actually the economy wouldn't run without all these other people. Um, and I think we've had this really weird discourse, haven't we, during COVID, where it's this idea that, you know, we've got to protect the economy. And the economy is sort of this entity that seems to just exist and it has as much of a right to life or even more of a right to life than, you know, everyday people who are you know dying from covid all the time but also from the most poor and marginalized people right so if you're an undocumented person if you don't have a visa if you don't have citizenship um you're you know you're obviously at threat from covid but say you do get it say you do end up needing to go to the hospital you know this is also going to become an issue of your citizenship it's also going to become an issue of your your workplace Uh, and suddenly and i mentioned this just to say that the link between our economy surviving and people surviving is kind of made out to be like they both go hand in hand when actually where they do go hand in hand is kind of hidden and those people are kind of ignored and where and where they don't go hand in hand because human life actually you know you, 
to say in more basic terms, you need to pay people a, ba- a universal basic income for them to be able to stay at home and isolate for the required period. You've spoken, you've, you've, you did such an excellent job of explaining the role of governments and the role of states and how we need to protect not just citizens, but also non-citizens that are often undocumented. I guess my question here would be, so you made a point of how, you know, obviously a small enterprise that's, you know, for instance, knitting sweaters at home versus a large pharmaceutical company or a large um, security company uh, um, that holds, you know, thousands of employees. They're, they're very two, two very different types of companies. How do we actually um, bring the values that both of those companies hold um, more aligned to serving their employees, aligned to serving our environments, and aligned to serving um, us as individuals in a much more um, beneficial way rather than serving the needs of shareholders. An organization like Amazon or okay. Apple or um, Facebook, for instance, those are large corporate organizations that a lot of new startup entrepreneurs aspire to and look forward to building companies on that scale, which are essentially monopolies, for instance, versus a smaller enterprise that is knitting sweaters for um, uh, its community members and is employing people using fair trade models and is um, employing, um, you know, very, very kind of sustainable practices. Those two companies look very different. So how do we bring companies um, together and align them around specific goals that serve society in a much more beneficial way, rather than what we're seeing right now, where we're seeing one end of the business spectrum where they're serving a very small subset niche audience of society, and then the larger organizations that are constantly trying to extract and exploit society in a way that benefits their shareholders. So how do we bring them all together to actually say, actually, these are a common set of, you know, business practices that everyone should follow. And, you know, if you want to function within this economy, this is how each of these businesses need to operate. What will that take for us to get to that scale where businesses are actually more acting more responsibly? You know, my, I guess my gut instinct response is, and I think actually it's not just the gut instinct response, it's an important question, which is, you know, firstly, why do we want to bring these differing companies into alignment, right? Um, that's one thing. And so the answer might be that, you know, because we believe that, you know, all business should exist for social benefit. That being the case, so let's just pretend that is the reason, which sounds like a good reason. Um I kind of think there's a big contradiction at the heart of a lot of conversations around kind of how to have a, um, you know, ethical, responsible business model. And that is that in a capitalist economy, in capitalist conditions, there's always going to be the motive to create more profit, right? And profit is often going to become the overriding motive because competition exists. So the only way that you can kind of surpass or remain kind of alive as a business is that you are producing profit, that you're you're creating profit for either yourself as the owner or shareholders or whatever. And as you said, there can be a range of what that looks like. But if that is the premise, if profit making is, you know, really central, I kind of think there's a contradiction because that is that ever really going to be able to be uh, hand in hand with I suppose what I'm trying to say is there's always going to be a limit to the kinds of changes and the kinds of um, reforms that can be made, right? And so I think there's this idea that like, okay, we can have a kinder capitalism, right? So it's like, a, it's like yeah, we're still profit making, but like everybody's got a living wage, um, everybody's been paid pensions, sick pay, all of those things. And that to me is, it's just, it's also hilarious that that is seen as like a really kind, it's like that should, surely that should be the basis, right? Like surely that shouldn't, we shouldn't be treating these things as like a advantageous and like ethical. This is really like a uh, kind of dodgy territory to be treating those things as like you're a good business because you, you know, treat um, your employees humanely. Um, but at the same time, I think maybe it, and I, you know, I think for me, it's that contradiction. That there's always going to be that conflict of interest, right? That you're trying to create profit, but at the same time, you're trying to do things ethically. And I think that the limits of that are, for example, do you want to pay your workers to the extent that they are confident and comfortable enough to keep asking for the kinds of things that they need to feel well, they need to, you know, maybe they want more time off, maybe they want better sick pay, maybe they want even better pension. Eventually, that's going to 
infringe into your profit, right? So as the owner then, where's your line? Where's your red line? Like, where do you stop? And and at what point then does it stop being a business model? So you, you mentioned um, around, you know, phrases like ethical, phrases like um, social good, conscious. I mean, conscious capitalism is something, is a term that I've used over the last several years. And it's taken me a very long time to actually recognize that these terms don't actually mean anything because there's no guardrails in place. There's no regulation around these terms. And conscious capitalism itself is an oxymoron. Those two terms cannot coexist, right? So, um, you know, we, we often try to justify the work that we're doing as social enterprises by using and attaching ourselves to these labels. Um, whereas businesses that aren't being acting responsibly, they have a very different standard way of, you know, implementing their processes. Um, and it's it's quite unfair that we have to justify the work that we're doing, but their business process and their business style is used as a status quo. And so I look forward to the day where, you know, every business operates ethically, every business operates with fair trade practices, every business pays their um, employees a living wage. But I guess my question here is that our identities are often entangled with these labels and then these um, these labels are extended to the roles that we take on, whether it's we're working for an organization or we end up starting our own enterprises or we end up building our brands. You have an entire podcast um, dedicated to breaking binaries because not everything is black or white. Do these labels have any tangible impact? And what is the best way to share a message that is not restricted to these binary labels, but still has the potential to draw in others that resonate with that messaging? Yeah, I think this is a really important question because one of the things about, so I think as I've said, I don't want to like repeat myself and kind of be overly repetitive, but I think the Profit-making motive of capitalism means that one of the things we've seen over the past few years is this really clever rebranding strategy. So anytime anything happens, every kind of, you know, big company will go through a rebrand. So we saw over the summer of 2020, you know, you have these Black Lives Matter protests that, you know, are going on that really are about life and death. They're about structural racism and they're about, you know, the criminal justice system. And in response... Uh, lots of companies, many of them very disingenuously, uh, realise this is, you know, something people care about. So we'll say we care about black lives, you know, black lives do matter to us. Um, and there you go, that's become a new branding tool. Now, you know, people are going to start continue or start to buy from us our product because of this. And I think it's the same thing with ethical, um, and you know, conscious capitalism or, you know, whatever it is, because as you said, firstly, you don't have to prove, you know, there's, there's nothing that's kind of no strings attached to that. You don't really have to prove anything. But secondly, I think it's this point that it becomes a, a branding strategy. So as I think as certain ideas um, gain a foothold more broadly, so people kind of see actually, yeah, you know, that, you know, people aren't getting the living wage, suddenly it became important for companies to kind of get the living wage stamp on their um, company portfolio or whatever to show that like, we do care about this thing. And as much as we might like to think that's because it's like good and ethical and important to do, I think there is always, like I say, this profit making motive that means that this also becomes about how you appear to be to the public, you know, how, showing um, your credentials and kind of gaining that that um interest and, and we see it in all sorts of really disingenuous ways so whether that was black lives matters and, and kind of then at the same time you know how black staff treated or you know wh- where where are your products made we see the same thing d- done with all sorts of different identities and intersections of identities and there's kind of like you know everyone will kind of put a rainbow on their their company for you know pride month but it's kind of like you know what does that mean what, what is that it's just it's these real branding tools and so i think when you ask like what you know, what is it that could be done to draw people in really further than that? I think it is just about moving beyond words, right? So, so much of language really hides operations of power. And I think, um, you know, on a personal level, something that I'm trying to do more of and trying to kind of actually apply more to others as well is, you know, show me, don't tell me. Because it's very easy to tell, I can tell you what I'm like, you know, oh, I'm, you know, it's even like so ridiculous, isn't it, that you write the bio that you tell people to read about you. It's like, yes, I am an educator, I am a writer. But actually, let me show you instead, like, what is it in the things that I do? And and this applies to everything, I think. So with businesses, with, with social enterprises, with whatever you are, you know, 
as much as these words and labels kind of a part of your branding tool, I think people are becoming more and more suspicious and more wary. And it's more important what you do. Um, We've seen with a lot of um, fast fashion industry, there's been a lot of cancellation of orders and there's been a general kind of reduction in profit made, obviously, because of COVID. But the employees, those people who work in sweatshops who are making um, the clothing, um, have been the ones who've seen that cut, not the kind of owners and the shareholders. And the reason I mention that is to say that if you want to talk about ethical fashion and consumption and, you know, wear a clothing company you care about X, Y, Z show me, don't tell me, right? So what are you doing in practice for those people who work in the sweatshops? And I think, again, you know, but again, even with this, I think for me, there comes a limit because really what can, you know, certain corporations particularly, like what can a big corporation do? Like what can Amazon do to become ethical when it's very premise? You know, we, we found out recently that um, Amazon warehouse worker would take over eight weeks. So that's 293 hours to earn what the CEO Jeff Bezos makes in a day, I think, or in a second, sorry, in a second. So with that instance, I mean, what, what possibly could Amazon do to become ethical? You know, like what the very premise of it, the very foundation of it, is just based on this like gross disproportion of wealth of, uh, you know what does it even you know I don't know if you've seen that TikTok video where somebody shows in rice grains um you know if one rice grain was worth a million pounds like how many yeah, rice I, saw that. <laughs> I think that's a really good example of like how ridiculously out of proportion that conversation can become as well because what you can't I don't think you can do anything to make that ethical you kind of just, some things I think just have to be demolished some things I think just have to end and I think that's actually a conversation sometimes that people don't want to have whether that's to do with business whether that's to do with um you know reparations whether it's to do with you know we, when we talk about racism I think the same thing occurs people kind of say okay like how can we reform this institution you know how can the British Museum become less racist actually some things just need to not exist so yeah w- with that kind of final question of like what could people do to to draw in others I guess the other, just if I, if I have time to add another question, is just, I suppose, maybe something for everybody to ask ourselves is also like, what is our motive in drawing in others, right? Like, again, cynically, it seems to me that that is like a profit making motive in most cases. Um, but if it's not, you know, if we're like a non-profit, and we just want people to know about our message or, or something like that. I suppose the que- the question still remains like, why is it like, what is it the work we're doing? What's the, and it comes back to those really simple questions of motive and intention and I think that is important because I think it's really easy even if you're just like a everyday person an Instagram user right I think it's really easy to start thinking about even yourself as like a product to be sold and marketed and so even what you start posting on Instagram is about you know how can I best present myself to my followership to you know give xyz whatever message it is that you've kind of decided is important to give and I think there's this weird way in which like branding has become almost so normalized that we don't see it as branding because we just think that it's part of kind of how we interact socially or otherwise that, you know, I'm going to post, um, let's go back to the Black Lives Matter example. I'm going to post this Black Lives Matter thing on my Instagram page just so that you know, as my follower, that, you know, this is something I care about. And I, I think that logic that was originally kind of just limited to to corporations is a neoliberal logic that's now infiltrated everywhere. So I don't, I, I I would kind of push away from that entirely and, and moving much more to what are the material things that you're changing and doing um, and show us through those actions what you are and what you stand for. I, I really loved how you said to move away from words and show me, don't tell me. I think that's um, that should be the mission statement for all more marketing departments. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, I guess if you if you don't have actual tangible examples to show of how you're actually having an impact in your community, then really, are you truly an impactful organization? And so I think it's really important to remember that when we do um, go out to build whatever it is we're building, whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's a cooperative, whether it's a for-profit business, but ultimately the goal of businesses and or any organization should be to serve one another and we need to create working examples of how we're actually each of us are doing that in our day-to-day lives um, and in the organizations that we work within. I guess my next question would be, so away from these buzzwords and away from these labels, in your view then, based on what you just shared, what do you think it takes to, or I guess, what does it mean to be a responsible business in your eyes? And I think the reason I find this a kind of difficult question is that if we 
build this idea of a responsible business, um, I think what it tends to do, it, it relies on its opposite, right? It's by, it becomes this binary then of you have the irresponsible business and the responsible business. And in a way, I think it makes responsible business into this fairly simple category to enter, which, you know, is something we mentioned earlier, where all you have to do to be responsible is really reach the minimum, right? So, you know, pay your workers, um, like do socially responsible things, you know, kind of have some pollution goal for, for targets, these kinds of things. So I think the, the bigger question for me is, you know, what does it mean to be a business at all then? What is it to be a business? Um, this is something that I think is difficult to grapple with at all, because if we have agreed on the one hand that capitalism is uh, exploitative as, you know, at its core, that it upholds structural racism, these global dynamics of imperialism, uh, colonialism, uh, all these kinds of really violent dynamics, if business, if our businesses are premised within that, what does it mean to be responsible? You know, both those words, I think, become quite difficult to think about. Um, you know, even if we're doing our very best, uh, if we believe we are, if you're a business owner, if you, so, you know, on the one hand, I presume it'd be irresponsible to not pay your taxes. You'd be a responsible business if you do pay your taxes. On the same hand, paying your taxes to a government where your taxes will be used to fund the military that then is going to kind of be part of these um imperialist ventures abroad or kind of involve themselves in um you know repressing politically dissenting governments um from from the one that you're in then is that responsible and i think you know i can't detach the question about responsible business from these broader questions of responsibility What, what does it mean to be a responsible person in the world today what does it mean to um do any you know I'm not a business I'm not a business owner but I still have to interact with people every day and I still you know I I will do the work that I do and be paid for it but that's still within a context where I have to really think about okay well where am I spending this money where have they got that money you know something I worry about a lot is you know where people have made the money that they're, they're paying me with for the work I do and so I think it's not there's definitely no easy answer and I think there shouldn't be uh because really the question that you're asking is also like what does it mean to exist in the world today and, and and not want to be complicit in all of its violence? And I think we have to be really honest that it's not going to be easy. There's not, it can't simply, you know, and if our, if we do come up with easy answers, I think that's because we're going to have a really low bar. It'll be something like, you know, um, pay your workers. But what does it mean when actually the only people allowed to work for you are people with citizenship because you've already been um, given the responsibility by the home office to, you know, essentially be a border guard in your workplace so you know even when I you know whenever I do work for university I always have to give my passport to make sure that I can get paid you know so what what does that mean you know how how can university be ethical responsible as an employer when actually they're already demarcating the boundary of like who can and can't work for them on a basis of citizenship which is something that's you know tied to race tied to nationality and you know I'm using that as an example because I'm just trying to think about what it means for us to even you know, when we're talking about responsibility, I think we're, we're already doing it within a limited sphere. There's a certain section of people we assume we have responsibilities to because there's a certain section of people who don't have rights at all. You know, we often talk about rights and responsibilities. So if we, we've already kind of decided these people we don't need to be responsible to, we only need to be responsible to, you know, whoever it is. I think that's that's difficult. So it's not a very satisfactory answer, but I think my answer is just that, you know, how can you know how can we talk about responsibility in a context of mass violence and exploitation um and i don't i don't want to be really fatalistic with that as well like just to add a, maybe a final caveat that's not to say you know maybe there's nothing you can do to be responsible business like if you're a business you're just like complicit in all violence um but it is to say that i think this is a really important conversation like we need to be having this conversation and i, I don't really see you know i'm really i'm really glad we're having it and you're raising these questions definitely but i think it's not something i see more broadly and it doesn't seem to be a real preoccupation nobody's really worried about what it means to operate under capitalism and the limits of that conversation go to you know what would it mean to pay the people that we employ which is again as i say such a low bar yes absolutely i think um I, I'm completely in agreement that a lot a lot more people need to be having these conversations. I guess the 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 downside of having these conversations is that it, it actually works against the current systems that we work within. And um that is not to the benefit of the businesses that 
you know, we we've currently have set up and are um, many people are dependent on for for an income, for example. And so I guess my closing question here would be, and I think you've already answered this in many ways, but I, I guess given that most of the listeners are here to understand what does it take to re-envision the way we do business? So I guess any closing words or any bit of advice that you can share for someone that is thinking of starting you know, a small social enterprise, for instance, how can that individual not just build a responsible business, but how can that individual themselves be a responsible member of society and move away from the current economic system that we are currently working within, which is capitalism, and still be mindful of the people that it employs, the resources that it uses, the the practices that it adopts, and move towards more just and fair practices that benefits everyone um, as well as themselves. So on the one hand, I think what you're asking, you know, isn't actually that fantastical, right? Is, I, I think on the one hand, I'm kind of thinking the answer to that question is fairly simple. Like if you if you're starting your own business, you know, making sure that the place that the profit goes is is really you know fairly distributed. Um, I think immediately we come, come, you have to confront, you know, your own ego, don't you? You confront the kind of the, um, I suppose the, the desire for profit that we've already mentioned. But I think for me, the world is really holistic. Everything is interrelated. So I couldn't provide, you know, what, what kind of vision should a business be having without saying what kind of vision should we have about the world? You, I don't think you can go about having a vision for business without having a vision for the world more broadly and that's because you know your business is going to exist in the world and so you know it's easy enough to say okay my business is going to pay every you know from the cleaners to the um, CEO everybody is going to have the exact same wage Um, you know we're going to source all of our materials uh, really ethically uh, you know again down the transport the the producers everyone along the kind of production line will be um paid the same you know even if we were to do you know that's just to give an example of what could be a really utopic vision of some sort of like um really you know fairly distributed profit for, for a business even then you're existing within you know global national regional regulations of economy you're existing with regulations that occur um way out of your own reach but you're also existing within the regulations that we've mentioned of you know whether that's the border who can and can't work for you whether that's um regulations of kind of police and and you know who who you as an employer are told to kind of criminalize or who you as an employer are told to racialize there's still those structures of racism there's still the racial hierarchy so i think the vision for your business can't be limited to your business it has to be about the world and so that then raises the question of okay so are you suggesting you know that we try to build an anti-capitalist world or a world that you know there's this different organization of society where we kind of have different relationships and the answer to that is yes absolutely and i I think sometimes we think of this as like oh my goodness this is you know utopian this is unrealistic how can we do that which is why actually to bring us full circle i go back to the quote that you, you read off my website at the beginning that when we actually can situate uh the current processes and dynamics that occur around us in a really recent history when we can say that actually it's only maybe the last 200 years that capitalism has really developed into the the way that we see it now and it's really over the last like 50 years that neoliberalism in the form that we see it now has developed it becomes easier to see that these things are constructed they're not natural and therefore if they had a beginning they can have an ending and things are always changing right you know it'd be silly to to assume that how things are today will be the exact same as they will be in 70 years. You know, hopefully that's not the case, but I think there is the case that how it could be, you know, it's quite easy to envision the dystopian version, right? It's quite easy to see how bad they could be and how much more exploitative they could be. But I think it is possible for us to say there are decisions that can be made on a social, on a global, on a state, nation, whatever you want to call it, level where we're re-envisioning actual just social relations like what would it look like and sometimes again just to answer that question of like is this too utopian I think we already do it right like the ways for example to give you know an example that may not be applicable to everybody maybe applicable to some people but I think we can all imagine it if there's a family unit who one person is you know earning money and they distribute that money amongst the family because obviously they're going to run as a unit they're not going to be separately paying wages to each family member they're trying to live their lives you know maybe um there's a 
a friend who needs to pay their mortgage and you lend them money. I think these kinds of relations that we already have between people where we often do redistribute money, where we often do kind of prioritise needs based on vulnerability, marginality, where we think, oh, you know, such and such needs this money more than I do or such. I think we already have a kind of way in which we understand responsibility when it comes to certain relationships. And I wonder what it would look like if we could extend that further, right? If it could be when you see a homeless person on the street, it's not that that's none of my business, that's nothing to do with me, but actually this is intimately bound up with the fact that when I go home, I'm about to have a meal and I'm about to go to bed where, you know, I, I can afford to pay the bills to have heating, where I can have hot water, all of these kinds of things. And I don't, I think when we break it down into those smaller parts, it's not as overwhelming. And it actually means that there are things that we should all be calling for, right? We can all call for a universal basic income, for example. That's not utopic. That's actually something that a policy the government could pass as a piece of legislation. That would actually end things like homelessness. That would actually mean that, you know, even if you are an employer, but the business that you're, you know, working with um, are kind of less quote-unquote responsible, they still now have to pay universal basic income at minimum, right? And so just, sorry, even the people who are or not employed, they're going to be receiving a certain amount of money that, you know, we've agreed is quote-unquote livable. But I think these, that's like a really limited version of an example I would like to give. But I think it's just to say that it's not unachievable, it's not impossible. And the kinds of regulations we can also ask governments to make, you know, for businesses, you know, there should, we should be able to call quite simply for regulation that, you know, people like Amazon, got big, huge corporations are paying their taxes, and that money is redistributed into society, you know, we should be able to think about our place as businesses in a context of austerity as well, right? So what does it mean that the government is making all these cuts to social services? Is it responsibility of business to fill those gaps? Or is it actually responsibility to place the onus back on government and on those huge corporations that don't pay tax to be paying the tax that then can be funneled back into those social services. Um, So yeah, I think that question of what vision to have for yourself as a business is really about, you know, are you thinking about yourself as someone in the world or are you just thinking uh, thinking about yourself as a CEO? Um, And I think it has to be the first, you have to be a person in the world because that's, that's where your business is located. And that brings us nicely to your statement around how we change the world through changing the ways we think about the world. Um, Yeah, I mean, there was so much to unpack and learn from. You shared so many incredible insights and just... Yeah, it's it's just it's a conversation that um, I think it's really important to have, whether it's um, with our leaders, whether it's with our businesses, whether it's with one another. And I'm just so, so grateful that you took the time to share your thoughts on the subject. And I'm I'm really looking forward to re-listening to the podcast and hearing all the gems of wisdom that you shared with us. And I'm sure so many of our listeners will appreciate um, your thoughts on the subject. So thank you so, so much for joining us on Re-Envision Business. So Thank you for having me. That's very generous of you. And I've enjoyed this definitely raised questions for me and, uh, you know, blind spots that I have. So I appreciate that as well. Thank you so much, Suhaima. We'll be back on the first Wednesday of every month with a new episode. To ensure you don't miss out, please subscribe to Re-Envision Business on your favorite podcasting platform, whether that is Spotify, Apple Podcasts or something else. If you've enjoyed our episode, please leave us a five-star review so that others can learn about re-envisioned business. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter with the handle UpEffect for updates on the next episode. Until next month.